For me as a Christian, first thought was, Lord, I'm coming home right now. This is it. Helicopter crashes don't go well generally. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. This episode of The Fine Line is brought to you by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety in the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. For more information on Roadhouse and its town square pub and eatery, visit roadhousebrewery.com. In part two of the Ray Shriver story, Teton County Search and Rescue volunteer Mike Moyer revisits the tragic helicopter crash on Togety Pass on February 15, 2012. We get a first-hand account of the team's response and what lessons we can all learn from that day. Shriver's team members also reflect on the importance of remembering his legacy. As we approached the area, we uh, how things go in the helicopter, your, your conversations quiet down a little bit. Everyone starts getting into rescue mode, mission mode, and uh, we start looking at the terrain and, and the snow and the, what type of terrain we're going to be in as we get within a mile of it. We got to a large meadow where we saw um, a small party waving, waving their arms and knew that was likely them. We came in, circled once, and came in and sat down near them. And Ray got out, went and talked to them, came back to the helicopter and let us know that the injured party was about two miles to the north and west of our position there and that the snow machiners would head up the ridge and we'd follow them in the helicopter. Pilot Ken Johnson lifted off with search and rescue volunteers Mike Moyer and Ray Shriver on board. The helicopter began following the snow machines up the ridge. As they followed, they flew low, about 150 to 200 feet above the trees, keeping an eye on the snow machines. But within minutes, the helicopter started to spin. Initially, just for, for a brief moment, I thought, well, maybe maybe Ken just saw him and we're making a hard turn. But within a moment, I recognized that something was very wrong. I didn't see my life flash before my eyes, but I did have three quick thoughts that just flashed through my mind. First, for me as a Christian, first thought was, Lord, I'm coming home right now. This is it. Helicopter crashes don't go well generally. I thought, this is it. And then I had a, just a brief flash of regret. And I was get a little choked up here, but just regret that. I knew that, you know, during all these years of, of search and rescue and fire service, that there was always a risk that, you know, something might happen. I just had that flash of regret that I was going to leave Lisa as a widow and my girls without their dad. But no time to reflect on that. And then, and then my last flash of thought was, here it is. I'm about to find out what comes next. <laughs> I'm about to consciously you know, step across that line. But before any chance to think about any of that, we hit the trees hard and 
I don't remember the impact. And the next thing I, I knew, it was quiet. I kind of came out of the fog and just like heard some, it was some slight electronic beeping, um, something from the helicopter. And it's just like, oh my God, I'm alive. Um, and uh, I uh, just kind of sort of took note. We were on, on our side, the helicopter's on our side in the snow and um, windows were all shattered out. And I, I started undoing my, my seatbelt and um, noticed a little bit of what I thought was smoke at the, at the time um, and just immediately thought, oh my word, there's a fire. I need to get out of this thing. I undid my belt and started pulling myself up through the shattered win window, side window, and immediately realized my leg was screwed up and, but I was pretty motivated to get out and away from the helicopter. Fell out on the snow and drug myself on my backside about 20 feet from the helicopter through the snow, yelling for the other two guys as I was moving away. And no response from them and pretty afraid that, that they were in bad shape. Soon realized that the, what I thought was smoke was steam coming from the snow that got jammed in on the, on the engine compartment was able to scoot myself back over to the helicopter and, and yelling for the other two guys. And in a few moments, um, Ray started coming around a little bit. I could see him inside and moving and started trying to help him as to get out. And both of us realized he was significantly injured. With a lot of effort, got him outside and onto the snow next to the ship started hearing some noises from Ken and were able to help him get out and he was injured as well. We sort of all took stock of our situation. Next step was to just sort out our injuries and see what we could do. Tried, tried my radio, tried reaching out to our dispatch and our team to see if we could reach anybody. No contact, wasn't able to. I had a, a sat phone early version of the satellite phones that we had at that time that attempted to use and call out with. But I think at that point, just the satellites weren't in the right position. We were in the deep trees too, and which sometimes can, in those earlier versions, be an issue and wasn't able to get out on that either. Um, so we took some time trying to get Ray comfortable and deal with his injuries. We're also hoping you know, aircraft have emergency locator transmitters, ELTs, in them that would, um, on a hard impact, start sending a signal out that can be picked up by a satellite and other aircraft in the area. So we were hopeful that that was, that was going off and would provide our position. But a perfect storm of compounding problems meant that Search and Rescue Director Tim C. O'Carlin had a new search on his hands. There were no other helicopters in town, so to speak, but we ended up finding a civilian helicopter over in Driggs. John Schick, high mountain helicopter skiing, had an aircraft. They had people in the field, but they were going to turn it loose as soon as they could. So in the intern, we didn't have anything. We did not know where the aircraft went down on Togedy. We didn't know where the snowmobile injury was at. We had flight following 
that is followed through the internet on the computer from a device in the aircraft. And that, it was the perfect storm. It actually failed and didn't reset. And that has specifically has two minute pings where it locates the helicopter speed and elevation, et cetera, and, and heading. Well, it didn't refresh and, and dispatch didn't realize that. Thinking about a helicopter flying at 100 knots, two minutes is a really long distance in the mountains. We found some last pings, but from there, we had no idea where the aircraft was at. We had no communication. They had none from the field. So it became a search. I, I continued to help Ray out as best I could. And because Ken was was able to uh, walk, um, gave him my portable radio, and he he uh, post-holed through the, the deep midwinter togety snow up the ridge and got up onto a small little ridge above us, not you know more than a couple hundred feet above us. Tried a couple different channels, was able to reach our dispatch center, and I could hear, he was close enough, I could hear their replies. Hotel Lima, we copy your Mayday. Do you have any injuries? Very hurt pretty bad. My guy got a leg injury. Copy. We do have two snowmobile excursions on their way to your location. Do you have to have coordinates? Probably the best thing I've ever heard in my life is dispatch reply back. It's pretty powerful. We have a recording of that. And I'm uh, forever grateful <laughs> to that dispatcher, just her calm, calm manner. You know, as I listen to it today, even just listen to her reply back in a calm manner to a mayday with injuries and her ability to work through the details and get what she needed to make, make things happen. My memory of that day starts by driving up to Togety. I recall that I was carpooling with Cody Lockhart. My name is Carol View and I've been a member of Teton County Search and Rescue for 20 years. And I remember driving up that hill past the Fitch Hatchery. And as we were driving, we were getting a little more information. We knew there was a heli crash. We knew which team members were on the helicopter. We knew one person was critically injured. We weren't sure what the injuries were. We had heard possibly a broken femur, maybe two broken femurs. I recall sitting in Cody's truck and just trying to mentally prepare myself for a worst case scenario and thinking through that if I get to him first, what medical, I was kind of going through the medical procedures in my head, of what I might need to do, what to be ready for, just kind of everything in my head. After some time, we began to hear a plane overhead, recognize just the way that they were circling in the area that they were, it was somebody looking for us. Ended up being a Civil Air Patrol plane, Bill Jepson and Dr. Jim Little. It was a bit of chaos. You know, everybody had an elevated heart rate. Once you've been on SAR for a long time, you try to keep that in check because you don't think clearly if your heart's really jumping. Having worked previously with EMS on ambulance, that helped me a lot with that. And 
other life experiences like working on ski patrol, but I recall getting up to the parking lot and team members were rolling in and we were trying to do a quick assessment of who the highest medical person was. And we were trying to get another helicopter to fly that person in. Well, it turned out to be me. I flew in with another person that's no longer on the team, a great team member who moved away. Uh, his name was Jamie Yont. He flew us in, the pilot, and we still didn't have exact coordinates. So as we were flying around, we're still looking for the crash. Ken came back down and I tried them on my radio, a few different channels, finally was able to raise them on one of the frequencies and then give them our coordinates um, that we had from GPS that we had. They uh, narrowed in our location. And, and they began circling the area, and we talked to them, gave them updates on, on our conditions and Ray's condition. They circled the area for quite some time, um, never seeing us because of the, the tree cover, and we were in the thick trees. And uh, it's, uh, we have photos from the plane that are looking directly at the area where the helicopter is, the wreckage is, and you can't see it just due to the, the trees. They began to talk with other ground resources that had been mobilized by that time. We began to hear snow machines in the area moving around us. The original two machines, guys that we were following up the ridge to take us to the, the original um, injury, they had began looking for us. They saw us start spinning and, and disappear over a ridge. They began looking for us right away as well, and they never were able to contact us. We had moved laterally quite some distance as we spun um, before we went into the trees. During that time, about two and a half hours um, after the crash, Ray passed away on the scene. I eventually saw a snowmobile in a little clearing, a small clearing, and asked the pilot to go towards that. And once we got close to that snowmobile, we could see the helicopter in the trees, but it was nearly invisible. It was so difficult to see in the trees. The helicopter put down by the snowmobile. Jamie and I got out with a bunch of gear, walked through the deep snow, crawled through the deep snow, got over to the woods and went into the woods. Uh, we saw the crash, which was phenomenal. You know, it's important to mention that, you know, Ray, Ray was a strong man and dealt with, uh, tough situation well. Yeah. During that time we were we were hearing um, snow machines um, getting closer and at times we I had my you know survival whistle that um, always carry and blow that to to the point where my ears were bleeding or felt like um, just trying to get their attention. Um, we eventually were able to raise a couple of them on the radio, on the portable radio, try to talk them into our location, but we realized snow machines we were talking to, the rescue teams that we were talking to were not the ones that were close in that we were hearing. There were several groups that were looking for us, including uh, Togedy Mountain Guides and, uh, and some private parties that were in the area as well. Eventually, uh, at one point, a snow machine came in close enough I could see it through the trees, um, and I spun around to try to wave and just tweaked my leg even more, and, you know, he didn't see us. About four and a half hours after the crash, um, one of the snow machines came buzzing up through the trees and came right on us, 
and he stopped briefly, said he'd be right back, went and gathered up three or four others in that party. One of the next snow machines that rode up, zoomed up, guy jumped off, pulled off his helmet, helmet and said, what do you need, Moyer? And it was, uh, it was one of our volunteer firefighters, Chris Betzinger, who's a longtime wildland firefighter for, uh, for the Forest Service. And uh, a, uh, like I like to say, a, uh, a Minnesota dairy farm kid that grew up being able to handle just about anything. And uh, he rolled in there um, with a, what do you need, Moyer? And just took that weight off my shoulders of, all right, we're going to be all right. These guys got us. Mike Moyer was there sitting by fire. And we checked on Mike, and he said he was okay. I said, Where, where's everybody else? And he said the snowmobilers that had arrived took Ken and Ray with them. And he said Ken was ambulatory, and Ray was not doing well. I don't remember his exact words, but his, he implied that Ray was likely not to make it. I think the snowmobilers had gotten some of our equipment out of the helicopter because they had towed him on kind of like an inflatable pad that I assume came out of the heli and towed him out to a bigger clearing further away so that the helicopter could access him more easily. And they gave Ken a snowmobile ride to that same location as Ken was also injured. Mike was injured as well, but the other two were worse. So he decided to stay behind. Um, then we went back into the helicopter because Mike said, go find Ray and Ken, go find that big clearing where the snowmobiles are and I'll be the last to go out. So we got in the helicopter and flew to the, flew around looking for that open field. We found them and sat down. Uh, my teammate told me, he didn't want to get out of the helicopter. He couldn't see Ray in that state. Told him that was fine. And I got out of the helicopter, grabbed a bunch of gear. And I remember crawling on my hands and knees because the snow was so deep with dragging gear behind me to get away from the rotors. I got over to where Ray and Ken were. And Ken was sitting on a snowmobile and Ray was covered with a blanket. I remember very specifically one of the deputies came over to me and puts his hand on my shoulder and he said, hey, Tim, Ray didn't make it. And you, you've all seen the TV programs where your knees fold and you're, you fall to the ground. I can assure you that is exactly what happens. Um, I literally buckled, had to catch myself and just sat. And from that moment on, Doug did the same. And I sat there and I thought, oh crap. And I pulled myself back up. I'm like, this isn't over. We still have two other people in the field and we need to get Ray out too. On the day of the crash, Shriver's son, Zach, was working as a rookie firefighter in Los Alamos, New Mexico. His younger brother, Matt, was living in Wisconsin, where he worked for Trek Bicycle. February 15th, 2012, I was um, new in my job with the fire department. So I was out, they call it out on the trucks. You're at your station, you're doing your, your duty stuff. 
So I was still a rookie, the new guy, you know, that type of environment. Only necessary stuff is shared with you as far as the job stuff because of the whole chain of command and all of that. It was a normal, normal day. We do our truck jacks, we run calls, we do our training, then our physical training. During our physical training, I actually got, we got called to do a transport, a non-emergency transport down to Santa Fe from Los Alamos. On the way back, our dispatch called our medic and just said that we needed to report back to station one, my duty station, as quick as possible. We're not allowed to carry personal devices or anything on our ambulance just for different reasons and stuff. So the only way that they could get a hold of me at the time was through the radio. I get back to station one. That's where the battalion chief is. And I get there and they say, Cadet Shriver, report to the, the chief's office. Being a new guy, I'm like, oh man, you know, what's, you know, you never want to kind of hear that. Immediately when I went up to the office, I just knew something wasn't right. My chief at the time, the battalion chief, a support officer, another captain, couldn't have been around any better guys that would have to share that news. So my chief said, take a seat. He kind of went into explaining that there was an accident. Your dad was involved in an accident. He didn't make it. He died. You got to say, do it straightforward. There's no beating around the bush. You know, it's just what it is. That, that was really, really tough. I had just talked to my dad a couple of days before. I was in Panama for a work trip. And it was a cool trip that he, you know, he was really interested in hearing about it and what I was doing. Yeah, when I got home, I was just kind of unwinding from that, catching up on some work. And it was that evening, and I got a call from Mary, her dad's girlfriend. And I usually would hear from Mary very rarely. So, because we would, you know, we would see them together. So, when Mary was calling me, it was like I knew something was wrong, of course. Like Zach said, actually, she was very direct with the information and you know your dad's been killed in a helicopter crash on a rescue in Togody. We offered to fly Mike out and I think his response was something like hell no I'm not getting in a helicopter I will take the snowmobile ride. He had been you know obviously on scene for quite some time and he knew how he was doing physically and mentally and how Ken was doing physically. Um, he felt that he could take a snowmobile ride out with his leg and he preferred to do that than get right back in the helicopter. And I can't blame him. That must've been absolutely terrifying being in that crash. We decided to leave the parking lot. We all went to the Togety Mountain Lodge to the dining room to just be inside and a place together. We all decided to eat there because it was very late and people were very emotional. And I was checking in with everyone as they were leaving to make sure that drivers were okay to drive. People were carpooling that needed to carpool. And the days following after that, our team was a bit of a, a bit of a mess in the sense that, of course, everyone was really sad and uh, Grand Teton Park Rangers, uh, the Jenny Lakers, gave us a call and said, hey, we're going to stand up. We're going to 
stand in for your team for the next couple of days. So you guys can have a breather. They have a skeletal crew in the wintertime as it is. They don't have their full summer staff, but they offered to do that for us. We had a, a couple days to kind of process and uh, we knew we'd have to pull it together fairly soon because they wouldn't be able to take our caseload and Ray would expect nothing less of us. He'd expect us to get right back at it. The team all knows this. I mean, it, it, they know that what we do can be dangerous. Just getting in an aircraft today and, and departing, you have to stop and think, are we doing the right thing? And our, our team knows that, you know, the folks making decisions are making good decisions. And our team knows that any person on this team can say, hey, wait a minute, stop and stop the whole mission. That's part of our culture, but it's also part of who we are. We, we train hard. We train in more difficult terrain. We train with better equipment and we train to get better all the time and we learn and then we try to mitigate the hazards to the best we can and go out and do our job. But the team needs to know that, number one, that should anything happen, the team has your back. We're there for you. But number two, things can happen. If you're not having a good day, you didn't sleep at night or whatever, you need to stand up as a teammate and say, hey, today's not my day. Can somebody else go do this? That's an okay thing to say because we don't want somebody to step out of an aircraft and get hit by a rotor blade or something like that. I, I think it's good that the team remembers what happened on this day and they think seriously about what we do. And I, I really think that gives it a deeper sense of being, so to speak, that, you know, we are in a very, very serious business. Yeah, we may be volunteers, but at any given moment, in an instant, things can go bad. And I might not come home to my family. And I think that ultimately is good. I mean, we have, we have pilots that want to go home to their family at night, and they're making decisions based upon that. And, and I really appreciate that because it's telling me that they're going to be more careful. Hey, we, it's not that we might not try. We might, but we, we're going to come home tonight. That's kind of where everybody's at in this team. And I think in great deal is because of this incident that we had, we look at things in a different light today and maybe not taking things for granted. When we had Ray's uh, service at the community event center, there were hundreds and hundreds of people from different agencies in the community and community was there to support us, to grieve with us, to grieve with the family and friends and to show us they really appreciate and care for what this team does. I generally think the community understands what people like Ray put out on the line to help someone. And in, the, in this particular instance, this person didn't need that kind of help on that day. We, we could have done this in a different method. A two-year investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that the crash was due to pilot error. 
that led to a loss of control in the tail rotor. The snowmobiler, a 53-year-old Minnesota man, also died before search and rescue teams could reach him. Years ago, I had been told when I first started flying by a mentor that you always carry your survival gear on your person. You might be separated from your pack, which I was in this situation. You might be injured and not be able to be as creative as you might be if you were fully intact in, in sheltering and signaling and all those things. So you gotta, you gotta be prepared with that equipment. And in this case, yeah, we, we tried, we had a little smoke um, signaling device thing that we tried and it, it shot all this smoke out. It went up about two feet and then went horizontal and didn't, didn't clear the trees, you know, didn't get out there where we'd seen. And all those lessons you learn over the years of signaling, you know, using a whistle and uh, color and contrast, all those things that, that might help you get found, you know, starting a fire and, and all those things. It, it's important to have multiple options because um, any one thing, you know, your cell phone, that's not enough in certain settings. You know, knowing what your various options are for communicating and communicating your location. and Yeah, it really paid off to be prepared. And I, I credit Paul King, who was one of our medical advisors years ago, for giving, telling me that. Two things that he told me years ago was, one is always carry your survival gear on your person, and then practice, practice, practice. We can carry some sort of fire starter and some sort of signaling device, but if, you, if you've never pulled it out and actually played with it in the wind, in the snow, in the cold hand, cold with cold, numb fingers, with the snow blowing sideways and in the dark, then you add in that your dominant hand is fractured or something like that, and suddenly those skills that you thought you had, you can start that campfire in the campground up the Grovan or somewhere, on a nice, beautiful evening in Jackson Hole in the summer, but can you do that injured, cold, with anxiety in the backcountry, in bad weather, in the dark? Pull out that little survival pack that you've put together and then try that stuff. Um, just uh, last week, my family, we went up for a day of snowmobiling up at Togarty, part of our anniversary remembrance. We sometimes go up there and we stopped for lunch and it was blowing sideways <laughs> and cold. Dug down in the trees in a sheltered area and we built a fire and warmed back up. And it was great. It was my daughter, my youngest daughter, started the fire, learned a couple of lessons, used what she carries in her pack for her survival kit. It's not easy. We've got to practice with that stuff. We might think we carry what we need to carry to build a shelter in the backcountry in the winter to spend the night even if we're uninjured, but it takes a little bit of practice. You, you need to do it a few times, a couple times to figure out what works, what doesn't, how to stay dry when you're doing it, how not to overheat, and how to make something that will actually keep you sheltered and warm. You know, seatbelts and helmets save lives, whether you're in a helicopter crash or a bike wreck or a car wreck, um, you know, or a, a bad skiing accident, you know. Helmets pay off, I have no doubt, you know, looking at the, the uh, pictures of the, of the wreckage and the helicopter that, you know, my helmet significantly contributed to my survival and my seatbelt that I stayed inside the, the fuselage. And that, that applies to car wrecks and skiing and all those things. You know. Helmets and seatbelts save lives. I do like to say 
to people that, you know, life is short and bad things will happen to all of us. Um, it's not a, it's not a maybe we kind of go along life, you know, assuming we're going to, we're going to be that one person that, you know, escapes something tragic in our lives. But, you know, whether it's cancer, an accident, um, relationship loss, financial loss, business collapse, something happens like that to all of us in some manner or to the, somebody, you know, our loved one directly. You know, we can go along life just pretending that's not going to happen or we can prepare and, and say, you know, I need to build our relationships. I need to be open with people and share my challenges in my life, develop friendships that count. One of the big things is our time and our careers. Over the years, off and on, done well and done poorly on, on spending too much time, too much effort in my career and not enough time with my family. You know, there's a saying that I came across in the days afterwards, after the accident, it says, if you die tomorrow, your coworkers and friends will miss you for a while. Your community will honor your life and your service. Your employer will soon replace you but your loved ones will miss you every day for the rest of their lives. I thought I was pretty strong prior to this, that I never really had a problem with alcohol or drugs, and I thought, you know, I, I avoid that, you know. But in the days after the crash, as I was, as I was dealing with the, you know, just the, the pain of what had happened and losing Ray and, and working through that and being injured and having surgery and laying in my bed in pain at night by myself while the rest of the family was sleeping. I found myself, you know, at times wanting to take some extra pain pills to sleep a little better. And, and, I, and I realized how easy it is to, to uh, you know, go down a path that, that could take you to a place you don't want to be. You know, what helped for me was to know that that was normal, that, to know that those, those feelings and, and all were normal and that the stress and the, and the pain I was feeling was normal. It didn't feel good, and my logical brain could tell me, this is, you know, this is, can be expected, and I need to bring others in to help me with that. And I did, and friends, close friends, helped me through those things and those feelings. And, of course, Lisa, my wife, was there through everything. and Sleeping on the floor in the bedroom on the first floor, <laughs> taking care of me during the night when I'd wake up. And I think... Uh, you know, we can also tell friends, you know, hey, I'm, I'm struggling here. I want to, you know, I want to take some extra pills. I just want to drink and forget about this, you know, and having that accountability to help us during that time. If we try to go it alone, it's not going to work. As a Christian, for me, my faith is huge in, in dealing with those things and, and trusting God that he's got a plan and knowing that smooth seas do not make for skillful sailors and that tough times in life... Um, do make us stronger and prepare us to help other people in too. I, I think I learned a lesson for uh, the day after the accident. I got this huge bouquet of flowers showed up delivered to the door. And I'd always been one of those that, you know, why would you spend $75 on something that's going to die in 48 hours? We could spend money on better. But this, this bouquet of flowers was from Teton Village Fire Department. Um, the guys out there that sent this flowers, first thing I got, wow, it meant a lot to me. I wasn't thinking, what a waste of money. It was, wow, they thought of me, and they reached out within 24 hours. More flowers came in, and cards, Hallmark cards. You know, I used to think, why would you spend seven bucks on a card that some guy in a cubicle wrote a little poem in, and you just signed your name? You know, it didn't make sense to me, but it suddenly did that somebody 
across the country that I hadn't seen in a long time took the time to send me a card. I encourage people, do those little things. When you know somebody around you, you hear of somebody from high school that ended up with cancer or a, fam a friend locally or even somebody you don't know locally that suddenly had a significant event in their life, reach out. Little things, little, little kindnesses go a long way. It wasn't long after that that we needed to use the aircraft for rescue and it was tough and as the one of the leaders of the team back then i was making decisions and putting specific people in the aircraft oh and i can tell you i was completely worried about that that really bothered me to the core that oh my god i'm making this decision i'm asking this person and then but we had to and I would, you know, hey, can you go? Do you really want to do this? You know, I know it's been, you know, it just happened. Do you want to get in this aircraft? And it wasn't say, it wasn't say, Tim, hey, get in the aircraft. You have to go. It was completely volunteer. And um, I, I'm surprised most of the folks on the team were ready to go. And they obviously knew what had happened. And they all stood up and they, they stepped up and they rescued and i think slowly because of that we worked ourselves back into flying again and and rescuing again i remember you know talking to him about aircraft and you know and, and being on the team and you know mike was like you know i think i want to do this i'm I, you know and i'm like how's your wife and your family feel about this and you know they're supportive and i'm like okay I think what we started with Mike, we just started with a couple of flights. Hey, go out and fly half an hour, just go fly around the block. And we started out with a couple of those just to get back in an aircraft. I, it might even started, I don't remember, but it might have started with just go sitting in the aircraft. Mike had the desire and, um, you know, he, he said that he and his family were, were good. He wanted to continue to rescue and he knew that he needed to slow down and, and start slow. So we did that. And um, uh, we flew a couple times and maybe four or five times even, I don't remember exactly, but to get Mike more comfortable. And, and then the time finally came where, hey, Mike, you wanna do this? And um, you know, you can go out in this rescue now and you know, blah, 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 these people are gonna go with you. and. You know, you don't have to do this. And, and Mike chose at that time when he was ready to go on his first helicopter mission since our crash. And um, and he did it and he did great. We did, you know, as expected, we did the rescue as expected and came back. And I think everybody breathed a sigh of relief. Um, we had some different protocols, some different safety protocols, some different communication protocols, so we could find our helicopter if it went down, et cetera. We had put all those into place. And I think there was a comfort level that was really hard. It was hard for me as a leader and it was hard for Mike and it was hard for the team. And I think we collectively all worked through that and we stepped through that and, and moved forward. I knew pretty soon after that I wanted to continue with search and rescue. I was a little more hesitant about flying. It took me, I think it was maybe 10 months after the accident before I flew again. I still love helping people in the backcountry. It's, it's just 
it's built into me and God wired me that way for whatever reason and I, I love in that setting and, and uh, I still enjoy getting out and helping people but I, I do get to the back of the line for the helicopter and I still fly and flew a month ago for a rescue up in the Togedi area and I still love flying but also realistic about risks and, and minimizing those for my family and it was critical for me after the accident in all the 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 roller coaster of emotions and and pain that I went through after the accident was knowing that that was normal and I'd gotten that over the years from from trainings and uh, that we had done that that uh, that stressed that you know these are normal reactions to abnormal circumstances the recognition of stress injury that it's not something that that needs to be permanent. It can be a continuum, and we can go through difficult things and, and be have stress injury in our lives and heal from that and move back in the other direction. And and I think that you know having having teams and agencies, uh, public safety agencies, law enforcement, fire and EMS dispatch that recognize the reality of stress injury and working with that and providing opportunity and, and having seasoned personnel in those agencies say, hey, this is a real thing. We encourage you to, just like you would seek help if you, if you uh, broke your ankle, um, that you seek help when, you, when you're dealing with the, the stress of, our, of the job and, and the situation. And that goes for people that encounter you know, tragedy in their lives in other settings as well, you know, cancer and family loss and those types of things is pulling other people in and, and recognizing that, yeah, I'm injured, I'm hurting, and working that, that through together and not siloing up and trying to numb it with other substances and things that, that only temporarily deal with it. Well, Your friends and comrades, they can't be replaced. They don't come back. Um, lesson number one. Lesson number two that I learned is even though you think you've made a really good plan and you think you've made really good decisions, it only takes a millisecond for things to go haywire. And they can and they will. And as much planning and mitigation as we try to do, that one second of something going sour, when it happens, there are consequences. And um, now it's how you deal with the consequences, frankly. And um, hopefully you walk away unscathed, but that may not always be the case. I think sometimes when people are faced with a bad accident in the backcountry, they think, oh, I, I'm not prepared to handle this. I, I don't know what I'd do. I take a woofer class, but I forgot half of it, right? But what I tell people is when I, when I was being cared for, I was being cared for by people I trained, people that worked for me. When I got to the ambulance, um, I was being taken care of by Jill and Wendy, who I was their supervisor. You know, we had worked together many years. They're highly skilled. But what meant the most to me was their, their kindness, was looking me in the eye and putting a hand on my shoulder and saying, we got you. All the books, all the training, all the fancy equipment, you know, that, that's what any of us can contribute. You know, we've, we've listened to many of these, these stories um, on the fine line of significant backcountry incidents. And 
with various capabilities and experience um, with the people that are right there. But I think the one thing that everybody can do is take a deep breath when you're with somebody on an incident and look them in the eyes and say, we got you. We're going to take care of you. I can tell you even today, asking people to get in the helicopter or myself getting in the helicopter, or even more importantly, is asking Mike to get in the helicopter. Even today, I, I look at him and I'm like, you okay with this? Um, they need to be okay too. And those are lessons that I learned. Uh, we all have to be on board on the same plan and going down the same path because uh, what we do is really serious. Um, at any given time, we may not come back home. Ray Shriver's legacy at Teton County Search and Rescue remains strong. Once a year, the team holds Shriver-style trainings with map and compass, while the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation honors his memory with the Shriver Society, a group of Teton County Search and Rescue supporters who donate to the team on a consistent basis. Upstairs at the hangar, the classroom is named after Shriver, and each person who enters passes a photo of him and his German shepherd, Paco. Ray was an amazing father to two amazing kids. He was an amazing companion to his, his significant other, a great dog handler. He had more passion to SAR than anybody that I'd ever met before. He went at it 100% all the time. I really appreciate being able to talk about Ray. He was an important part of this team, and I don't want people to forget him. Something that I just wanted to tell everybody on the team, and being a, a firefighter myself, I can't imagine what, what Mike and Ken have gone through. You know, that's like, and even the rest of the, the team at the time, that's kind of the worst, the worst day when you have an accident amongst your team and there's a fatality, it happens. It's, it's part of what we all sign up for and the risk first responders sign up for. I just wanted to, to say that my dad respected his team members so much, looked up to him so much. Before the accident and still, my dad had so much respect for Ken as a pilot. He was always impressed and proud and uh, just talked to him about being the best pilot as he was. Matt and I heard stories about that a lot too, the, the missions they went on and he would share those. He was very impressed with the helicopters and so were we because of that. And uh, with Mike, man, I, both of those guys are heroes, you know, to me. Outcomes are the outcomes, but to, to endure what they went through and to do what they did out there on that mountain in the snow, I don't think I've told that enough to Mike, maybe. I think about it all the time and the rest of the, the members too that were that there that day, they're heroes and um, to be in that situation, I can't even imagine. They'll, they'll always be the best of the best in my eyes and I just can't thank them enough for what everybody did that day. <laughs> you know, they did their best. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.